Codex. Codex. Welcome to another episode of Omen Revelations Podcast, the flagship show of the Omen Comics Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mike Nunley, and with me, as always, is my best friend and co-host, Steve Sellers. Uh, Both of us are huge Star Trek fans, and it has been a long time since we did a Star Trek episode, and that just had to be rectified. In this episode, we're going to do a kind of character study on John Lou Picard, at least as far as the Borg are concerned. To do that, we're going to talk about 1990s Star Trek Next Generation episodes, The Best of Both Worlds, Part 1 and 2, from Season 3 and 4, and 1996's Star Trek First Contact. Um, In addition, we will explore the effects that the Borg has had on Picard. That is is actually a lot to unpack. Uh, But before we get started, was there anything you wanted to say, Steve? Sure. Uh, I still remember when Best of Both Worlds Part 1 aired, and it's an episode that still sticks with me especially the ending, which is bone-chilling, but I'm sure we'll get into that soon enough. Uh, The Borg debuted as the next huge threat of the Star Trek universe in a big way, quickly becoming as important as the Klingons and the Romulans in just a handful of episodes. So huge, in fact, that the Borg left scars on several Trek crews, entire crews, including the Enterprise-D, Deep Space Nine, and Voyager. Uh, I can't think of a single other Trek villain that managed to pull that one off, and that is truly impressive. Uh, but I think you wanted to talk about how Next Generation established that threat, Mike? I do, Steve. Um, I feel like we have to set the stage a bit before we get into the best of both worlds. I really want to paint a picture of how terrifying the Borg really were uh, to not just Picard, but to the Enterprise and the Federation, too. Uh, to do that, we need to talk about a couple other episodes that lead into the best of both worlds. Those episodes are uh, Regeneration from Star Trek Enterprise Season 2, Episode 23, uh, The Neutral Zone from Season 1, Episode 25, and Q-Who from uh, Season 2, Episode 16 of Star Trek The Next Generation, a.k.a. TNG, as they work for uh, for a Borg and a First Contact trilogy. Uh, there is a bit of retroactive continuity in Enterprise Regeneration episode that I'm going to try to fit together as well. But there was something you wanted to get across as well here, wasn't there, Steve? There was. Uh, I think a large part of the reason why the Borg are so frightening at their best is that they are cold, calculating, and inhuman. They act with mechanical precision, and they learn to adapt to everything quickly. But they're also like Kyle Reese's description of the Terminator. They can't be bargained with. They can't be reasoned with. They don't feel pity or remorse or fear. And they will not stop until you are dead or assimilated. Even Federation captains have said several things about the Borg. Um, In the words of Jean-Luc Picard, uh, quote, In their collective state, the Borg are utterly without mercy, driven by one will alone, the will to conquer. They are beyond redemption, beyond reason, unquote. They are are completely convinced that the galaxy will be better off as part of the collective, and they consider all individual thought to be irrelevant. All life will become Borg or be destroyed as far as the Borg are concerned. They think the forcible assimilation of all organic life is perfectly logical and the proper order of things, and that is what makes them so dangerous. You know, I I could not not agree more uh, with that. And and actually, I really like the Terminator comparison there. That that was pretty cool. 
I also have to say that the Borg's uh, idea that they are a benefit to those they assimilate does make them more frightening. Like like when we as humans try to help creatures or or in the past so-called savages or barbarians that we think don't know any better. Uh, the Borg don't see anything evil about what they do. Uh, that's a perspective I'm going to have to chew on for a bit. Uh, but let's dive into our episode. The first episode I want to talk about is The Neutral Zone from TNG. Uh, in that episode, the Enterprise-D investigates the disappearance of a number of Federation outposts along the Neutral Zone. Uh, they discovered that outposts have been literally scooped off the surface. That is a phrase to remember here, and don't let it go by you casually. Uh, imagine if the Pentagon or an American military base was just scooped off the surface of the Earth. That is not only frightening in the fact that it, it feels targeted, not random, uh, to have to have so many outposts scooped up. That means someone or something with considerably greater power than they have are likely to be able to deal with whatever whatever is coming after them. Uh, the Enterprise-D may be the flagship of the Starfleet, but they were out on the borders of their space. Uh, but back to the episode. Although the Romulans are initially suspected as the outpost scoopers, this theory is discounted when a Romulan warbird arrives having crossed the neutral zone under the impression that the Federation was responsible for the same thing happening along their side of the neutral zone. However, there is no resolution of the mysterious disappearance of the outposts in this episode. Uh, so just imagine an unknown threat uh, like that out there potentially looking for you and your ship and having no resolution about it at all other than it was not the Romulans. That anxiety will eat at you in those quiet hours of the night. Uh, what do you think about all that, Steve? I think what made it more worrisome for the Federation is the fact that they had been out of the contact with uh, the Romulans for 80 years. Nobody had any idea why the Romulans withdrew for so long or whether they might react with hostility again when the Federation showed up at their doorstep. But then we find out that both sides have had their colonies scooped up and that the Romulans were victims as well. Um, and that, in a way, makes it even scarier because the Romulans are extremely dangerous enemies. They're very good at coming in with cloaked warbirds and just wiping people off the map with plasma torpedoes. I mean, that's their, their modus operandi. So the fact that anyone could do that to the Romulans suggests we're dealing with an opponent of frightening power from the start. The episode doesn't really make it clear who was responsible, but we do eventually get some hints in later episodes. Mike, do you want to get into what happened there? Sure thing. Uh, but I want to say that you are right about having that happen to the Romulans did take things up a level as far as the fear of the board goes. Uh, but as to what happened there, it is highly suggested later that it was, in fact, the Borg who had done the scooping up of outposts. Uh, but it would not be confirmed until the Best of Both Worlds episode. Um, as of that time, though, the Borg are not mentioned by name when this revelation happens. Check this out. In TNG's Q Who uh, from Season 2, Episode 16, the Enterprise is super warped, for lack of a better term, uh, 7,500 light years away uh, to System uh, J25 in the Beta Quadrant by Q. Listen to Picard's own words to Q after that experience. You wanted to frighten us. We're frightened. You wanted to show us that we are inadequate. For that, for the moment, I grant you that. Uh, you wanted me to say I need you? I need you. Picard begged Q to save them, and that was the only reason they survived. Again, I'm trying to paint a picture of this building fear in Picard and the crew of the Enterprise. Sure, Picard and the crew are brave and bold, but that doesn't make doing that easy. Uh, the more fear that builds up in them, the more courage it takes to overcome it. Very true. Um, I, I really love how well the threat of the Borg has slowly built over these two seasons. 
I, I will admit that I wasn't sure who was responsible until I rewatched Q Hugh and realized that data basically confirmed that the Borg was behind it. As for the episode himself, I mean, Q does this classic trickster thing, making a reasonable point under the guise of playing games with Picard. It shows that Q deep down does see a glimmer of hope in Picard, even if he sometimes has to teach some harsh lessons like he did here, uh, in this case, you know, uh, poking a bit of a hole in his pride. Uh, though that lesson had hard uh, repercussions, like throwing the Federation into direct conflict with the Borg years before they were ready for it. But there were contacts even before that, as it turns out, uh, weren't there, Mike? Actually, there was. But just as a quick note, I do like the point you made about Q acting like a trickster god in that story. That that was spot on. But but yes, uh, the Borg did make contact before that. A Borg vessel traveled back in time from 2073 uh, in an unsuccessful attack on Earth in 2063 in Star Trek First Contact. Uh, drones which survived this defeat were discovered and reactivated by human scientists in 2153 and transmitted a subspace message to Borg space before being destroyed by the Enterprise NX-01 in Star Trek Enterprise Season 2, Episode 23, Regeneration. The Borg in the present in first contact would also attempt su to send such a message to the Borg in their time. Now, here is where that retroactive continuity comes into play uh, for Starfleet and the Enterprise. In the regeneration episode, the crew fires on several Borg with their phasers, causing the Borg to adapt to their phaser fire. And the crew has to turn their phasers up to kill to stop the Borg. In Q-Who, you'll notice that the Borg that first appears on the Enterprise-D is so immune to standard phaser fire that he doesn't even require a shield to block it. Then Worf has to turn up his phaser to effect change. In that respect, the retroactive continuity fits, but could also have come from their contact with Federation outposts along the Romulan border in the Neutral Zone episode. The only thing that is uncertain about this is why the Enterprise-D would not have had more knowledge of the Borg when they were confronted with them in System J-25. All I can suggest is that they assumed they were dealing with an entirely new species as Q was introducing them to what was to come, not something they had encountered before. Because of this, they didn't bother to look up the information from their past, especially when they had Guinan, who was already familiar with them. Um, at, at least that is the only way I can headcanon that uh, with, with what I see in the episodes. Uh, but what do you think of that? You know, the best I can think of is that Starfleet Command essentially buried the information for political reasons. The researchers dug up these Borg drones, didn't practice very good safety protocols, and they even allowed the Borg drones to regenerate and left them to thaw out, all while knowing the potential dangers they presented. And then a number of researchers were killed and or Borg as a direct result of their negligence. I, I could see not Starfleet Command deciding to keep their existence classified, rather than reveal information that probably would have ended the careers of whoever authorized or oversaw the project. And then later on, once Starfleet realized what they were dealing with, I could see the information remaining under seal because of how damaging it would be for the public to know that Starfleet had knowledge of the Borg for centuries. So to answer your question, my guess is that the truth was buried so deeply by Starfleet that nobody was able to access that information and let alone use it, including Picard. Now, uh, there is a backstory point that's worth bringing up about Q Who. The Borg entered the home system of the Elorians at some point in their mutual history, swarming through it, scattering its native inhabitants, and leaving little or to nothing of the Elorians in their wake. Um, in 2293, the Federation offered aid to the Elorian refugees fleeing the Borg, as seen in Star Trek Generations. 
These refugees included Guinan, who would later provide secondhand knowledge of the Borg uh, invasion of the Elorian system to the crew of the Enterprise D during their encounter in the 24th century. However, these earlier incidents contributed almost nothing to the Alpha Quadrant's awareness or understanding of the Borg Collective. Weirdly, it seems like nobody really put the pieces of the puzzle together until the Enterprise D had their confrontations with the Borg later. That, that is actually a pretty decent case for Starfleet basically screwing themselves over when it comes to the Borg if they did bury that information. And honestly, I can believe that they might have done such a thing. Uh, there have been several cases that just an ordinary guy like me knows about where those with the information conceal it or control it for the purposes of power or even because of the ever-dreaded panic that might ensue if the information gets out. Um, I have to say that theory makes a lot of sense. Uh, but but back to Q-Who. Um, while in the J-25 system, the Enterprise-D crew discovers a nearby planet on which all the cities and machine elements have been scooped off the surface. That's the same language they used in the Neutral Zone episode. And as that was a, a lingering anxiety from before, that information surely added fear to discovering that. That enemy that was most likely too powerful for them to beat in a confrontation was practically at their doorstep. Data even reports that it is identical to what happened to the outposts along the neutral zone in the previous year. And at that moment, a Borg cube arrives, which silently says whoever these people are, they are the ones scooping the cities and machine elements off the planets. For further evidence of this suggestion, I would point you to Star Trek Voyager Child's Play uh, episode from season six, episode 19, where we see the same scooping of the machine or, or city elements off the surface, or at least evidence of it in Echeb's home planet. And they say that it was the Borg in that episode. This means that the Borg were aware of Starfleet, humans, and the Romulan Empire at least a year before Q-Who, uh, when they first encountered the Enterprise-D. Uh, you know, I'll admit that when we first started talking about this, that I wasn't 100% certain it was the Borg. What I think finally cemented it was what Data had said here. The fact that a known Borg scooping had identical signs of the incidents in the nuclear zone makes it clear that the writers had intended it to be the Borg all along. Now, I don't know if the board was already a plan since season one, or if they had a general idea that they wanted to build to, and the concept of the board came later. But either way, I think it was a really effective way to establish how powerful and dangerous that the board truly were. And after both Q-Who and Best of Both Worlds, there is no question that the board are now the big bad of the Trek universe. And we'll get into all that pretty shortly. But first, I think you had something to add? Actually, it's it's more of a random side question before we get into the best of both worlds, part one and two. Uh, something interesting happens in Q Who. Uh, when Q transports himself and Picard back to 10 forward and Guinan and, and Q take up the threatening postures against each other and Guinan holds up her hands as if she's about to cast a spell or, or shoot something from her hands. And, and as her and Q had meetings before and he did not mock her for it as he is wont to do, uh, then I have to assume she does have some kind of power uh, that she almost revealed that one time. But we never see her do that again. Uh, do, you, do you have any theories on that one, Steve? None aside from some early installment weirdness. I, I don't think that the writers had quite figured out who and what Guinan was yet by that point. Mind, I'm sure that they had worked out some things out about the Elorians. Uh, for instance, we know that they have the ability to sense things that humans can't. But it may have been that they had originally thought that Guinan had other powers beyond her immortality and her sensory ability. 
and then they just dropped it for some reason. Uh, I, I, I did find Q's reaction to her very interesting. And the fact that Guinan is able to threaten Q uh, opens up a lot of questions. I, I just can't begin to guess what those answers might be, given how a little we truly know about the Elorians. Anyway, with that, that out of the way, uh, why don't we dive into Best of Both Worlds? That sounds like a good idea. And I think you're probably right about them having dropped some ideas they were playing with for Guinan. Uh, they, did, they did similar things with uh, Data, even. Uh, but yes, uh, let's dive into it. The Best of Both Worlds Part 1 and 2 came out as the finale of Season 3 on June 18, 1990. And the much-anticipated first episode of Season 4 on September 24, 1990. The Best of Both Worlds took 36th place on the 100 Greatest TV Episodes by TV Guide. The Best of Both Worlds are, is listed as one of the 10 essential episodes of TNG in the 2008 reference book Star Trek 101 by Paula M. Block and Terry J. Erdman. Uh, the Best of Both Worlds was ranked number one in the Star Trek The Next Generation Viewer's Choice Marathon in 1994. Uh, but what do the fans say? There are those that would say that season three is where the show came into its own. And that two-part episode, The Best of Both Worlds, is one of the greatest in TNG and maybe even the franchise. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, the Best of Both Worlds ranking in TNG and the franchise as well, Steve? I generally agree with that assessment. Uh, this two-parter drew me back in the next generation after a while where I drifted out of the show. Not that I thought the earlier stuff was bad at all, just that the show was still kind of finding that its voice by that point. Um, but by the time that uh, Best of Both Worlds hit, uh, Next Generation had found its voice and then some. Um, they created an iconic villain in the board, found a way to threaten the crew in a way that no other Trek show had done. Um, and they gave us some really good ship warfare action in the bargain. Uh, I think this is where I became a huge fan of the show after really only being interested in it casually. There are great episodes that came out after this, too, as we discussed on previous episodes of the podcast. But in terms of truly epic storytelling that had galactic stakes for the Federation, it's really hard to beat Best of Both Worlds. I, I think this the, the Best of Both Worlds two-parter is easily in my top five of the whole franchise. Uh, also, while I did thoroughly enjoy about a dozen or more episodes from the first and second season, I do generally feel like the show really came into its own in the third season. As you said, they found their voice and then some by that point. Uh, but the Best of Both Worlds remains one of the more memorable of TNG. Uh, but why don't we get into the creative process behind these landmark episodes, Steve? Sure, let's get into some details about uh, how Best of Both Worlds came to be. Uh, Writer-producer Michael Peller had been hired as a screenwriter on a one-year contract, with the last one being Best of Both Worlds. By that point, uh, Peller was in charge of the writer's room, and he decided he wanted to shake some things up. The way he decided to do this was to set up a two-part cliffhanger, which had not been done since the menagerie on the original series. The producer also wanted a cliffhanger because of uh, contract problems with various actors, and uncertainty over who would return, including Patrick Stewart himself. In fact, the Locuta storyline was influenced by the uncertainty of whether Patrick Stewart would renew his contract for another season. So the ambiguous cliffhanger ending in Best of Both Worlds Part 1 could have allowed the show to kill off the card and alter the current structure of the Enterprise uh, permanently with the series continuing with uh, Will Riker as captain. I imagine that, that trying to write a teleplay with no idea on what characters are going to be there or not would be extremely frustrating, uh, especially when you're talking about the captain of the Enterprise. Uh, this is not a character that can easily just be dropped out of the story or, or, or even to change their role in it. 
the captain is a major character in the series and and just doing the transition from Picard to Riker uh, would have had to be a major part of the story so not knowing whether or not to do it that way uh, would really tie your hands as a writer I mean how, how did he even get through that Steve? Uh, Pillar wrote part one with no idea how part two would end and, and said uh, they're going to figure it out next season um, Pillar <laughs> I can't imagine doing that. Uh, Pillar felt ready to move on uh, rather than remain uh, second in command, but he was persuaded to stay by Gene Roddenberry and Rick Berman because of the major success of the best of both worlds part one. And in fact, uh, Gene Roddenberry was so satisfied with Pillar's work during the third year of the series that he personally asked Pillar to stay on. That was a huge deal in Pillar's mind. But moving on, it is interesting how Beverly starts shifting into more of an action role, starting with this episode. The, the reason for Dr. Crusher's inclusion with the away team who are tasked with attempting to retrieve Picard of the, from the board was that uh, actress Gates McFadden had uh, mentioned to Pillar that she thought it would be fun to fire a phaser, as uh, Dr. Crusher was rarely, if ever, directly involved in combat situations. It had only happened once before in Conspiracy back in Season 1, Episode 25. I, I actually find this funny, considering how Beverly goes hardcore and starts firing phaser rifles like a boss in the third season of Picard, <laughs> but I digress. I, I think it definitely makes sense that it wasn't clear who the cast was going to be as they had it into the two-parter. The emphasis on Riker in part one does tend to hint that way, not to mention that we've seen uh, cast changes before on, on Next Generation, most notably Dr. Pulaski taking over for Dr. Crusher in season two and Tasha Yar's death in season one. They may have expected something similar to happen with the end of season three, but I am very glad that Patrick Stewart decided to remain on as uh, Picard is very much the cornerstone of Next Generation as a series. Not to mention how much the addition of Locutus gave to Picard's character. And we'll talk about some of that when we get to First Contact, but what did you make of all this, Mike? I, I can certainly see the best of both worlds part one uh, being set up as a as a means of making Riker captain of part two. The whole subplot uh, of Riker trying to decide if he wants to take the captain's chair. Uh, granted, uh, they made it so that he was considering taking the chair on a different ship, but, but still, I, I can see the roots of that in there for sure. Uh, just as an interesting note here, audiences tend to see the best of both worlds part one as a Picard episode because he is assimilated by the board. Uh, but that is not how Pillar saw it. Pillar considered part one to be a Riker-centric episode, and he compared the character's quandary over whether or not to leave the Enterprise to his own experiences as an executive producer on Star Trek. However, the decision to leave it for the next season to figure out came back to bite him in the ass. Not having a plan for the fourth season as he was planning on leaving required Pillar to write a resolution for season four, episode one. Luckily, Patrick Stewart came back for, for good, and that did help a lot. As you said earlier, um, he really is the cornerstone of the series. Uh, but things were even more complicated for Pillar. When production for season four began, there was an almost entirely new writing staff, and they worked together in the writer's room to break the story. Uh, one of those writers was Ronald D. Moore, a big name you'll hear again soon. Uh, he felt that part two, as, as written, had a little too much uh, techno battle and was not as satisfying as the first half. So not necessarily the greatest situation to come back to as a writer, uh, but all things considered, it, it, it didn't work out too bad, did it, Steve? No, not at all. 
Though I will say that there's a noticeable shift in approach when we get to part two, not in a way that breaks the story at all, but you can tell that they had the pieces worked out by that point. Um, I can understand Moore's point though. Uh, now in the interest of disclosure, Ron Moore was my favorite writer on Next Generation and he had good instincts for what made good Trek. He wrote outstanding episodes like Tapestry, which we talked about on our Captain Picard Day episode. Go check out that pod uh, if you want to see why it is a favorite of mine. Anyway, in this case, I think they tried to find a good way to resolve the story while leaving the main cast intact. And they found a pretty solid way to pull that off. Not perfect, but still really enjoyable. And it, it ties together the threads left by part one in a satisfying way. But let's move on to the aftermath. During the writing process on the episodes, uh, Pillar worked with Moore, who wrote the following episode, Family. The two writers considered Family to be the final installment of Best of Both Worlds as a trilogy. Um, an earlier idea was that Picard and Data would both be assimilated by the Borg and become a single unit, but that ended up being scrapped. The Battle of Wolf 359 also ended up not being used in Best of Both Worlds, uh, though we would later see the battle in Deep Space Nine and Voyager as flashback scenes, uh, most notably like in Bonvoy, where we see Cisco's past. Uh, budgetary concerns forced producers to uh, edit the story down into two parts. However, many of the ideas, in particular data being assimilated by the Borg, uh, would be reused in Star Trek First Contact. Initially, there was no plan to have an episode reflecting on the ongoing effects on Picard after the traumatic events of the two-parter, but after Pillar raised the issue with Roddenberry and Berman, it was agreed to be added as long as it included a science fiction story. Instead, Moore and Pillar agreed to have the three family stories contained in the episode, which would resonate with each other. And honestly, I tend to agree that Picard needed a ha Oh, go ahead. I, I, I actually, I had, I had, I had one thing that just occurred to me that I hadn't thought of before. They, they talked about potentially uh, joining uh, Picard and Data into one unit. <laughs> Mm, I, I wonder yeah. if we would not have had a Tuvix debate over that. <laughs> Probably. It, it's a goofy idea, I have to say. But, you know, that's the writing process. Um, but um, honestly, I tend to agree with the idea that Picard needed to have an episode that offered some sort of personal resolution after what he suffered. Uh, after being kidnapped and assimilated by the Borg, I just don't see Picard going back to work as usual like nothing happened. Uh, that just doesn't make sense to me. Picard might play it stoically, sure, but I don't see anybody not at least bringing the issue up to him. Having a smaller episode where Picard goes home to spend time with his family on Earth made sense as a way of dealing with those issues. I, I, I have to agree with that. Uh, there is no reason not to explore the obvious trauma of the event in a series. Sure, if it was a movie, I could see maybe needing to trim it down, uh, but the effect that the board had on Picard and the crew absolutely needed to be explored. I will actually dive into my take on how Picard responded to all of that in a bit. But for now, uh, I'd like to get into a bit of geek stuff about the two episodes. Uh, there were actually many firsts in the best of both worlds. I suppose that uh, the first one I think of is the phrases, uh, resistance is futile, and the other half of the quote, you will be assimilated, uh, first appeared in these episodes. Though the Enterprise came into contact with the Borg and Q-Who, the best of both worlds is the first time we actually see someone assimilated. Part one also established Earth as being Sector 001, and part two is the first time Mars is even introduced in the franchise. Uh, part two also revealed that the shuttlecraft and TNG come with individual transporters. And the last but not least, Will Wheaton is credited with his rank as Ensign Wesley Crusher for the first time in part one, and up to his departure in the final mission, something that was long overdue in my opinion. 
Yeah, as much as Wesley was a character I could take or leave personally, he did deserve to be properly credited. So that was definitely a good thing. But it's also true that this episode firmly established many of the iconic elements of the Borg, so much so that it's hard to think of the Borg without thinking of these two episodes and what they brought to the table. So why don't we talk about uh, exactly how the episodes pull that off, Mike? I, I think, I, just, just as a quick thing here really quick, I, I think I probably talked about uh, this before, but Wesley Crusher was my way of seeing myself on the Enterprise because we were within a few years of each other in age. Uh, I didn't get that in any of the other characters in, in, in the, the original series. So maybe I'm a little biased when it comes to him. But yes, let's talk about the episodes. Um, the Best of Both Worlds Part 1 starts out by confirming that the Borg were in fact responsible for the outpost and city scooping because the same magnetic residence traces are found on Jurette 4 that the Enterprise found on the planet in system J25. I bring that up because Voyager was not even a show yet, and we're going with uh, what info Picard, the Enterprise crew, and Starfleet knew at the time. Uh, but getting that uh, evidence was like Nancy Thompson pulling Freddy Krueger's hat out of her dream, revealing that it was not, in fact, just a nightmare. Uh, their worst fears have been imagined. After first interacting with the Borg and Q-Who, and now with evidence, they know those those fears were not just in their imaginations. They were no longer theories. Uh, can you try and imagine what that would be like? That that That's the picture I'm trying to paint here. The building dread and anxiety over the last year just went from a feeling or, or imagined thought to concrete evidence of the real. Uh, what must have that have been like for Picard and the crew? You know, I'm impressed by how well this episode builds tension and establishes the sheer level of dread of the Borg. We saw in Q-Who that in general, there's really not much that the Enterprise crew is genuinely afraid of. Their job is to investigate the unknown and they're willing to face it head on because that's the duty they've accepted. They, you know, they all know the risk and they're willing to face the consequences of those risks as they have ever since they put on those uniforms. But the Borg are such a frightening opponent that even these hardened, brave explorers are facing them with a profound sense of terror. Partly it works so well because Q-Who did such a good job of showing the Enterprise how out of their depth they were against the Borg. This episode slowly ratchets the tension up by showing what the monster does without necessarily showing it indirectly. It's absolutely a masterclass in how to build fear of a villain, both from the characters and from the audience. Awesome. I, I, I totally agree with that. As a guy who has watched one or two horror movies, I can attest to the quality of the slow burn when it comes to a villain or an enemy. The audience is then given time to imagine, just as the characters are. Uh, and just as a writer who tends to lean into horror, leaving things to my imagination can lead some to some dark and twisted shit. Uh, but I imagine that nine out of ten times our imaginations will go farther than reality. Uh, so, I mean, I just... Having all of that sink into him all at once was pretty burly. And speaking of the slow burn building dread of the Borg, Starfleet Admiral Hansen confirmed in Best of Both Worlds Part 1 that they knew that the Borg were coming for the last year, uh, a.k.a. since the Q-Who episode. Imagine having that knowledge for a year. Uh, we have met an enemy that could very well mean the end of the Federation. Uh, but what Admiral Hansman left out is that the Federation has known about the Borg since 2153. Uh, but there is some retroactive continuity to consider here. The Borg and Starfleet have known about each other since 
the Enterprise Re Regeneration episode. The Borg are from the Delta Quadrant, so their presence in the Beta Quadrant at System J25 suggests a response to the events in, in the Regeneration episode. Perhaps it took them until 2366 to reach the Alpha Quadrant, uh, being that they were assimilating worthy species along the way. So I have to ask, what do you think of that, Steve? It's not impossible. Uh, probably Hansen would have had the clearance to access that information, though I don't think anyone else would have been made creative to it. If we go with the theory that Starfleet kept the regeneration information classified, it could be that this is the point where they started connecting the dots together between the Borg from Q Who and the 2153 incident. It would explain why Shelby was as far along as she was in her research, though I doubt even she knew where all the data came from. So, I'm, I mean, if, I, if I'm hearing you right, Starfleet might have started connecting the dots and was willing to share some of the data, but not necessarily how long they had known or where the data had come from. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that's the possibility that I'm going along with. I mean, the, the Enterprise, it could have been on a need-to-know basis only. The, the, the Enterprise clue clearly was not briefed on anything from 2153, and nobody references it at, at all, including Shelby. Um, at the same time, I think it makes sense that Starfleet's high command would have had access to that data, and they would have likely have started making connections based on the reports that they had gathered. Uh, all of this is trying to do the work of the series and headcanon things in a way that sounds plausible, granted, but that's the best I got right now. No, no, I think I think that's a pretty solid theory there. In fact, I, I, I have a theory I would like to add on to that. Um, Picard was the first one to speak to the Borg in Q-Who. He introduced himself first as Jean-Luc Picard and then as captain. This this might be the seed that led to the Borg choosing Picard as their locutus or, or voice. You, you notice that the Borg hailed Picard by name. The Borg did not say Enterprise or use any other name. I, I, I'm imagining uh, meeting a new species in space and how easy it would be to meet someone in authority uh, among that race and want to use them as the voice to represent them. And, and also another related theory, this tactic of trying to have a representative for themselves to the humans suggests the level of fear from a species that would otherwise destroy and assimilate the human race, which was their second option, as we see in First Contact. Very possibly that was a factor. The Borg start being very impersonal, but realize that it's useful to designate a single being as their representative. So first that's Locutus, and later on it's the Borg Queen uh, ends up uh, taking that role on herself. But I imagine that there were other reasons. Picard's extensive tactical knowledge and experience had been instrumental to his success in Starfleet. He had a good record of diplomacy across dozens, if not hundreds, of worlds, which made him useful as a spokesman. Not to mention that he was captain of the Federation's flagship, which makes him a high-value target. But for whatever reason, the Borg sing out, singled out Captain Picard, and they forcibly made him the, the spokesperson for the entire Borg collective. I can, I can easily see what I, I suggested and what you just brought up there as being factors in their decision. Uh, so good call on that. Um, I'd like to switch over to discussing a single moment, a shared look between Shelby and Riker that I think actually said quite a bit. Uh, Shelby had really laid into Riker about his hiding under Picard's shadow because he was too afraid to take risks. She went on to say that uh, that was why he had turned down three commissions in a row, including the Melbourne which could have potentially given her Riker's job on the Enterprise. Uh, it was a thinly veiled but derisive attempt to goad Riker into taking the captain's chair on the Melbourne. Even Picard said that she is a fine ship and encouraged him to take the chair and consider his career. 
When Riker retorted that Picard needed him aboard the Enterprise, Picard responded by saying that Riker was in fact needed, but as a captain. Starfleet needed good captains, particularly then. All of that to say that Riker was under a lot of pressure to take the assignment. But something happened in Best of Both Worlds Part 2 when Riker hears from Shelby that the USS Melbourne was on was one of the ships that was destroyed at Wolf 359. And while they do not say it directly, there is a look on both Riker and Shelby's face that to me denoted a few things. One, I think Shelby might have regretted her competitive words to Riker in that moment, realizing that he would now be dead as Riker had the same realization. Uh, two, I wonder if Riker thought that maybe if he had been on the Melbourne, perhaps they could have survived with Picard's uh, words about Starfleet needing good captains ringing in his ear. Uh, do, do you have any thoughts on that one, Steve? I will first say that I think Riker stayed on the Enterprise for as long as he did for a couple of reasons. Um, I think the big unspoken reason was that Deanna uh, was on the ship with him, even if neither of them was really able to address their feelings at that time. But I think it's also possible that Riker was holding out to be captain of the Enterprise once Picard was ready to move on. Nobody would have been more qualified to succeed Picard as captain than Riker, who knew the ship inside and out and was very well respected by the crew. In the end, Riker's decision was proven correct during his time as Aptine captain. Uh, Riker ended up being more than capable of commanding the Enterprise as captain, even when he was up against Picard himself. So I think Riker, being more patient than he was as a younger officer, was playing the long game by keeping himself in a position where he could reach that brass ring. Sure, he could have taken any ship in the fleet that he wanted, probably, but none of them was the Enterprise, the flagship of the Federation fleet. That is a very interesting perspective that I had not considered before in regards to why Riker wouldn't take the chair, no matter how fine a ship it was. Also, Imzadi being on the ship was most definitely a factor, without a doubt. Uh, but while, while people kept asking Riker to consider his career, in the light you just shined on it, it that was in fact what he was doing. Really, it was a smart play. Yeah, I mean, Will is a fairly smart guy, even if he doesn't always get credit for that. But to uh, get to your question, I think the realization that the Melbourne was destroyed definitely hit both Riker and Shelby. I do wonder if Will thought that he could have made a difference for them. And it may have been that he could have done something to keep them in one piece. But it's weighed against the fact that he might have been able to do more to help uh, just by commanding the Enterprise. Will was in the right place at the right time to save Picard and Earth. And that may have been the key factor that saved the Federation from the board. As for Shelby, she definitely seemed to regret what she said. And I think this is probably what leads her uh, becoming more like Riker in her later career. Um, after this, uh, Shelby ends up taking a first officer position aboard the Excalibur in the New Frontier novels, where she ends up becoming more of a by-the-book kind of the officer. And by the way, those books are awesome. You should read them. Um, I can't help but wonder if it was due to her own guilt, uh, though, thinking that she might have come close to dooming the Federation by thinking only of her own ambition. Um, it, it could also be uh, that the reality of war uh, against the Borg really changed Shelby as well, and that's what leads her to understanding why Riker played it much more cautiously, even leading her to adopt some of his methods. Uh, she'd spent so much of her career working with theory that she didn't know what war against a, a powerful enemy was truly like in practice until it hit her in the face. Riker did understand that, having been out in the trenches for years as an experienced uh, officer out in the field. Shelby finally came to understand that by working with Riker, and, and she ended up maturing in the same way that Riker did because of that experience. Wow. Uh, you kind of opened my eyes there a little bit. Um, I, 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 I did not know about the New Frontier novels. Um, 
I like that character arc for Shelby, and it makes me actually like her more because she's able to see and admit her mistakes as well as grow beyond them uh, and learning how to watch her tongue. Uh, she applied it to her career as well, but now I have to start pointing some fingers when it comes to the board and who might have had some responsibility over how powerful they became. Guinan told Picard at the end of Q-Who that Q set a series of events into motion, uh, bringing the Enterprise into contact with the Borg much sooner than it should have come. And she was not kidding. Of course, she went on to suggest that at least one of those things was that since the Borg know of the Enterprise's existence, they will most certainly be coming for them. But I think I see the series of events that Guinan foresaw like a row of falling dominoes. When the Enterprise faced the Borg at J25 in the Q-Who episode, the Borg put the tractor beam on them, and despite Card's orders to use whatever means necessary to stop the tractor beam, the first two shots that were fired at the Borg cube were far from it. I, I don't understand that at all. It was like, the tractor beam? What? We'll just hit random spots on the cube. Uh, but it was not until the third shot that Worf actually aimed for the tractor beam, like Picard's orders certainly seemed to suggest to me, and it was destroyed. That's three chances for the Borg to learn and adapt, but they did damage 20% of the Borg cube in those three shots. In the Best of Both Worlds Part 1 and Season 3, Wesley Crusher describes that 20% damage as barely scratching the surface. 20% in three shots is not barely scratching the surface. Um, they Had they kept firing, they could have done even more damage before the Borg were able to adapt. To be fair, they were still adjusting to the Borg's ability to adapt and overcome. Uh, but that inexperience led to the Enterprise's entire arsenal being fired at the Borg and allowing them to adapt to every weapon the Federation had to offer. The only thing the Federation could come up with to combat the adaptation abilities of the Borg was to modulate the frequencies of their phaser fire to the upper electromagnetic or EM bands. Uh, but the Enterprise used this modulated frequency on the Borg, trying to take them out of warp and do as much damage as they can before they disengage. And four different variants of this frequency were used by Dr. Crusher, Shelby, Worf, and Data when they went aboard the Borg cube and used their phasers on the drones that approached them. Data and Worf even combined their phaser fire to destroy the node, and that too added to the defensive capabilities of the Borg. Then the one that really sealed the fate of those at Wolf 3.9 was the modulated frequency EM blast from the deflector dish. There wasn't anything they didn't throw at the board. Again, the lack of experience that Q was pointing out in Q-Who was just knocking over the dominoes. Do, do you have any thoughts on that, Steve? No, I think that's a pretty accurate take on the situation. Guinan has always been someone who has been sensitive to changes in the timeline. Yesterday's Enterprise is probably the best known example of this, where Guinan was the only person who could sense that time had been changed because of the Enterprise C time traveling to the future before their moment of sacrifice. It might be that Guinan sensed something similar when Q decided to throw the Enterprise into conflict with the Borg uh, before they were ready to handle it. This was probably not how things were supposed to go down as she sensed time, uh, though it should be said that her sensing of time is more of a gut instinct than an exact science. But the sequence of events you laid out matches up perfectly with that. Uh, and, and I think that uh, it was the crew's inexperience with the Borg that got him in trouble on those occasions. And it should also be said that it was Picard's handling of Q that led directly into the Federation's wars against the Borg. Awesome. Sounds like we're on the same page with that then. Uh, with that being the case, let me go a little further with this. 
I'm not trying to say that the Enterprise or her complement knowingly prepared the Borg for Wolf 359. Uh, but I am saying that the Enterprise D does take uh, a fair amount of responsibility for preparing the Borg for it. Uh, the rest of that responsibility goes to Picard, obviously. Uh, but, but there were the outposts that were scooped up. But I think that the Enterprise D was their first contact with the Federation starship. Uh, the Romulans didn't mention their ships being taken out. Uh, not that they are really a sharing people anyway, but I am covering all my bases here. The only thing I think the Borg might not have been prepared for was Riker's idea to ram them. <laughs> Even Worf had that same idea in Wolf uh, 359 there. Uh, but what's more is that I am certain that the Klingons at Wolf 359 rammed their ships right into the Borg cube, shouting, today is a good day to die. Uh, but speaking of Klingon ships at the Battle of Wolf 359, I would like to point out that we see Klingon Borg in first contact and more of them in Star Trek Voyager. In fact, when the Borg Civil War began, one of the leaders of the rebellion was a Klingon Borg named Korok, uh, just adding more defensive and offensive capabilities to the Borg. And as if all of that was not bad enough, the defeat in, J in System J25 led directly to Picard being assimilated, and that led to the Borg gaining vast knowledge about the Federation. That knowledge, of course, led to the Borg's decision to go back in time to assimilate Earth before they could ever become a threat, a.k.a. before we even made first contact. I think it's pretty clear that the Borg have cut themselves off so completely from any emotional concerns that they're unable to conceive of an enemy that would die to achieve victory. If the Borg uh, calculated their odds of victory are low, they'll just warp out, adapt to their previous encounter, and then they'll try again in a more logical time. To a machine and hive mind, the idea of anyone destroying themselves to take their enemy with them would seem illogical and unthinkable. This is why I think they had problems with Riker giving the order to ram the cube and with the Klingon idea of death before dishonor. To the Borg, there's nothing rational about just sacrificing yourself to destroy an enemy or to save someone else. The collective mindset simply can't conceive of such a thing, though the Borg probably have since adapted to those strategies as part of their tactical programming. But speaking of Borg tactics, I, I find the time travel plan to be a really weird decision on the Borg's part. This is not someone like Khan who takes pleasure in conquering people and showing off his intellectual superiority. So maybe you can clear help clear this up for me, Mike. The Borg are calculating precise and have clearly stated objectives. They want to add every culture's biological and technological distinctiveness to their collective. While time travel does allow for the removal of the Federation as an entity that could oppose them, it comes at the toss of technological distinctiveness. Uh, if you take out humanity at the dawn of warp drive, they become less valuable to the Borg because then you don't, don't have all the 24th century technology that the Borg would consider useful to the collective. It never made sense to me why the Borg would willingly deprive themselves of a useful commodity when there are more efficient ways to assimilate the Federation into the collective. Do you have any ideas as to why the Borg went forward with that plan? Um, I, I have a few ideas about this. Uh, going by first contact, we see that the Borg Queen is an assimilated human woman and that she clearly has emotions. And let's not forget the old adage of hell having no fury like a woman scorned. Uh, I think that the human emotion was introduced to the collective via the Borg Queen. Picard rejected her in the Best of Both Worlds Part 2. And perhaps it was a furious, scorched earth response to that rejection. Although there was definitely hubris on the part of the Borg Queen that speaks of acting out in anger and not logic. Do you realize she sent one, count them one, Borg Cube to fight all of Starfleet at Wolf 359? 
I would have sent at least three personally, especially knowing that Picard had knowledge about how to destroy the Borg cube by firing at that one spot. That hubris led to her defeat and, I think, only enraged her further. That is at least one of the reasons why I think she went back in time to first contact. And just as a final thought on it, perhaps going back in time would have allowed the right people on Earth to be assimilated. Uh, that the tech could have been developed perhaps you know, with the, with the humans assimilated into them uh, within the Borg uh, instead of humanity. But, I mean, how's that? That may be the best answer we're going to get on this because you're right that only an emotional response could be pretty good account for it. It is not a logical approach. Still, it does signify a huge shift from the Borg away from their original portrayal towards something different. Um, there was no Borg Queen until this movie, um, at least, you know, in terms of uh, show production. And before this point, there were simply a soulless collective without any kind of human face aside from Locutus. Now it seems like not only there is a queen, but that she's driven by organic and emotional driven responses, as opposed to their previous cold and methodical way of doing things. But uh, why don't we get back into Picard and where he is emotionally at this point? That sounds like a great idea. I, I must repeat, though, that First Contact did retroactively say that the Borg Queen was there when Picard was assimilated. They talked about how the Borg Queen wanted Picard to willingly give himself over to her. I only bring it up because this is a point that will come up later. Uh, but you are right when uh, she was not originally part of the story. Uh, but back to the Battle of Wolf 359. 11,000 people died in that battle. And 39 ships were destroyed. And Starfleet's armada now had to be rebuilt. Uh, the effects of the Battle of Wolf 359 reverberated across the Federation. And on a very personal level, had a huge effect on Jean-Luc Picard. So let's talk about Picard, and this will actually lead into our first contact discussion. Picard is one who was violated in the worst possible way I can imagine. Uh, the Borg stripped Picard of his autonomy. He ceased to be an individual in every way. He was no longer his own, down to his very cells. He wasn't even human anymore. They even took away his name and called him Lucutus. Uh, one of the most powerful scenes in the best of both worlds was a single tear. As the Borg were assimilating Picard and changing him, we see one tear fall from his right eye. That was that, that was just very powerful from a stoic man. At least it was for me. Oh, it was for me as well. I mean, not only was he basically broken by that point, but um, they did a really good job um, uh, with showing that there was a certain amount of humanity left within Picard, but also that that part of him was severely damaged by his time with the Borg Collective. And we start seeing that he's traumatized even at that point. So, yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Awesome. I, I'm glad that hit you as well. Uh, it's honestly one of the more memorable moments in that first episode. Uh, but speaking of Picard's assimilation, after his assimilation, while being powerless to stop it, the Borg Queen, who was on the Borg Cube, as we find out in First Contact, forced Picard to turn on his friends and fight against the Federation he had so completely dedicated his life to. He was saving lives one minute and hitting the button that murdered lives within hours, completely antithetical to all that is Picard. What's more is that it was Picard's tactical knowledge and experience uh, that had brought him so much success in the Federation were now used without his consent to slaughter 11,000 people. The Borg took Picard's humanity, not to mention once he was Locutus, he saw all of the stuff I was talking about earlier with everything the Enterprise did 
only served to ultimately make the Borg more powerful. Uh, that was on him before the Borg assimilated him. He was also utterly powerless to stop it all, and had it not been for Riker's brilliant and unorthodox thinking, Lacutus would have very well gone on to make Earth the Borg planet of Earth we saw as the potential future of our planet in First Contact. Now, that is a very frightening uh, timeline to imagine. And as you say, it very nearly could have happened. Um, it's very clear to us that, as the audience that Locutus is not part, though. Uh, Locutus is an automaton, a drone under the control of the Borg Collective. As we saw, the best of both worlds saw Picard's crew trying to prove that Locutus and, and Picard were two different beasts. That Picard had no control of his actions and was an unwilling player in the, the Borg Sinister game. Picard spent the rest of his life trying to convince himself of the same. This was six years of his life where Picard was trying to rediscover his humanity, trying to work out where he began and Locutus ended. This led to severe feelings of guilt and shame, as well as blinding, raging hatred for the Borg that almost consumed him. The crew was able to see the difference between their beloved captain and Locutus, but Picard would spend much of the rest of his life feeling responsible for all that happened. Now, we don't necessarily see a lot of those issues bubbling up too much in the remaining episodes of Next Generation. We do see Picard facing the Borg again, but we don't see the deeper psychological effects of his assimilation in the way that we do in First Contact. Now, it's possible that Picard was trying to put on a front for all this time, trying to be the person that he was because that's what the crew needed him to be. But maybe beneath all that, he was dealing with serious PTSD, rage issues, and possibly even identity issues because of all the trauma that he suffered at the hands of the Borg. But there was more to it than just that, wasn't there, Mike? There certainly was. Uh, one of the things that haunts Picard is that he can still hear the chorus of a million voices that is the song of the Borg. That's how he knew the Borg were coming before the Admiral finished the report. And it is how Data was able to call out to Picard to let him know that he was still on the ship. This would haunt him clear into his golden years, as we saw in the Picard series. Uh, but I, I just have to comment on one thing before we totally move into First Contact. The ending of Best of Both Worlds Part 1 was scary. Particularly Picard's, or rather Locutus's words, I am Locutus of Borg. Resistance is futile. Your life as it has been is over. From this time forward, you will serve us. Us. That us on the end of that <laughs> sent a chill down my spine. I don't know about you. Oh, totally. It was the same with me. Uh, I still recall uh, recite the Locutus speech myself on occasion because it's just that good. From this time forward, you will service us. I mean, he just uh, sounds so cold and inhuman and not like the Picard we know at all. Picard becomes truly Borg in that moment. The other thing about that scene is how good the music is in building tension in those final moments. You know, just so when the Locutus speech hits, it strikes with dread because the hero of the series is now the villain that Riker and the crew now have to defeat. We never see it coming, and it is beautifully written television. And then you have that, you know, really great musical score in the background as, as, as the episode closes. I mean, part one is a masterclass in how to build narrative tension which just builds nonstop from the opening scene until Riker gives the order to open fire on the board queue. Hell yeah. Well said, my friend. A writer could learn a lot from the best of both worlds without a doubt. Uh, but now I'd like to get into the 1996 film Star Trek First Contact, if we could. 1994 Star Trek 
generations was a great way to cap off the original series movies and begin the TNG movies. Uh, but after that, uh, people were clamoring for a full-on Star Trek The Next Generation film. So Paramount Pictures brought on two longtime creators to get the job done. The first was Brandon Braga, who was a staff writer, uh, story editor, and co-producer on Star Trek The Next Generation. The next pick was Ronald D. Moore, who was a screenwriter, script editor, a formative creator of the Klingons in The Next Generation, and the co-writer with Michael Pilar in 1990's The Best of Both Worlds, Part 1 and 2. Both are obviously very solid choices, and Braga and Moore were the co-creators of the 1994 film uh, Star Trek Generations. So they were really the logical choice. Uh, but when it came to directors on the film, Paramount went with two other choices before turning to Jonathan Frakes when they turned down the job. But Jonathan Frakes was the next choice to direct because they wanted the task to fall to someone who truly understood Star Trek. As for the writing process, Moore and Braga knew from the beginning that they wanted the Borg to be in first contact. Producer Rick Berman wanted the story to involve time travel, and those two ideas were combined, hence the reason Rick Berman has a writing credit in the movie. The first setting for their story was the European Renaissance, uh, but they ditched that idea in fearing the Renaissance would be too kitsch. So they chose the mid-21st century for the Borg to corrupt instead. By the third draft of the script, uh, Moore and Braga started adding cameos. Robert Picardo appears as the Enterprise Emergency Medical Hologram when Beverly tells him to stall the Borg. Picardo played the holographic doctor on Voyager. Um, he won the cameo after suggesting to producers that the Enterprise should have the same technology as Voyager. Picard's line, I'm a doctor, not a doorstep. Uh, is an allusion actually to Dr. Leonard McCoy from Star Trek the original series. But he was not the only one from Star Trek Voyager that made an appearance. Ethan Phillips, who played Neelix, cameos as a night nightclub maitre d' in the holodeck scene. That sums up the writing process, though. Um, however, I believe you had some similarities between a few things you wanted to point out, didn't you, Steve? Sure. Although I will say that the um, the doctor uh, um, cameo was really awesome. Um, that guy, Robert Picardo, is so good in that role. Um, but before I do get into it, um, I will say a few things in the preamble. I generally like First Contact, and I think it is the best of the next generation films, at least of those I've seen. I have not seen Nemesis. Uh, still, it's not a perfect film, and there are some moments here and there that did raise my eyebrows a bit. Still, we'll discuss some of those points when we dive into our full discussion of the film. Now, this movie definitely took some cues from Wrath of Khan. And while later films would uh, overdo the Wrath of Khan references, uh, at this time it made perfect sense to structure a next generation film that way. Uh, like Wrath of Khan, uh, First Contact brought a classic villain back from the show and updated it for the film. Uh, perfectly fine. So much like Khan, you have the uh, return of the Borg. Uh, revenge is also a huge theme in both films. Uh, Khan's vendetta against Kirk is echoed by Picard's uh, desire for vengeance against the Borg for what they did to him. I'll also add that uh, Moby Dick was referenced in both First Contact and Wrath of Khan. Uh, Khan's final lines in Wrath of Khan were actually adapted for Moby Dick. From hell's heart, I stab at thee. For hate's sake, I spit my last breath at thee. <laughs> These were Ahab's lines, uh, written by Herman Melville, but they were um, reworked a little bit and given to Khan, and it works really well. It, it, it just says, it, they work beautifully in that film. As an aside, though, I think you even see a copy of Moby Dick in Khan's bookshelf on Seti Alpha 5. And then, of course, First Contact makes a direct comparison between Picard and Captain Ahab with the Borg representing Picard's white whale. It's a bit more on the nose than First Contact, but there is a decent bit of symmetry there. 
presumably um, this was Ron Moore and Brian and Braga giving a nod to Nicholas Meyer. Oh, wow. I, I did not know that was a nod to Meyer. Uh, but that is pretty cool and, and a good catch on the Wrath of Khan, Wrath of Khan similarities there. I, I think it also combines the uh, combines uh, the element of uh, City on the Edges of Forever from season one on uh, uh, the original series uh, by the Enterprise traveling back to the past to restore the future. Uh, in this case, it is the Borg, not Dr. McCoy, who have changed the past to such an extent that the Enterprise and the reality they knew no longer exists as Earth being totally turned into a Borg planet. It also throws a bit of who watches the Watchers from TNG Season 3. In much the same way as Picard revealed uh, the Enterprise to Nerea, uh, the Mantakan uh, woman, and violated the prime directive to resolve an issue, so too did Picard uh, to Lily Sloan, Cochran's assistant. Uh, they are using these familiar elements, but, you know, in a, in a new way. I'm not 100% sure that those episodes were a direct influence, or at least I'm unsure if they were intentional ones. Though it should be said that Ron Moore, who knew his Trek pretty well, might have had City on the Edge of Forever on his mind. It's possible you could be right, or it could be that those episodes were unintentional influences that were lurking in their subconscious somewhere. It's just hard to say for sure. Ah, uh, that's fair. Um, I can go with City on the Edge of Forever being an unconscious uh, influence uh, from just being fans of the show. Um, I suppose that, that Who Watches the Watchers is a bit of a reach in retrospect, uh, but I believe you had more to say about time travel in Star Trek, right? Sure. Uh, though it should be said that time travel is a huge Star Trek staple, and it was used extensively on both shows, as well as on Deep Space Nine, which was referenced with Worf commanding the Defiant in First Contact. Uh, going back in time to fix what went wrong is a pretty common time travel trope. But Star Trek especially tends to do, love doing those kinds of stories. What I find interesting here is that they combine the Borg plot with the time travel plot. Uh, while the Borg deciding to use time travel did make me scratch my head a little, it, it's an interesting blend, and that does help to set First Contact apart from other kinds of Trek uh, time travel stories that we've seen. I think it also sets First Contact apart from many Star Trek films as it blends all those familiar ideas from the series into the film, giving it a more authentic feel to it, like Wrath of Khan authentic. Uh, but let's get into the initial conflict with the Borg in the movie, Steve. Sounds good. Uh, early on in the film, the Enterprise is ordered to stay out of the battle with the Borg. They're instead sent to patrol the neutral zone on the off chance that the Romulans might try to take advantage of it. And honestly, I really don't think that the Romulans would. I mean, given that they've been on the receiving end of Borg's, Borg attacks themselves, as we talked about, the Romulans would not want to attract the attention of the Borg. Um, as it happens, uh, this turns out to be the case. So Picard disobeys a direct order and takes the Enterprise straight into the fight against the Borg. So my question is, was Starfleet right to bench Picard in the Enterprise here? I'm... I'm actually of two minds when it comes to whether or not Picard and the flagship Enterprise should have been kept out of the fight. On the one hand, Picard is right that his experience with the Borg would have been invaluable in that scenario. At the same time, I am with Starfleet in that Picard has no place in that battle because he is not stable. As we see later, Picard has become Ahab and the Borg is the whale. He is absolutely consumed with vengeance. And in my opinion, the Enterprise would have been at risk with the liability that is Picard in the captain's seat. I honestly think that the opening sequence of Picard's nightmare shows Picard's state of mind. His trauma is very much at the forefront of his mind and emotions. Don't get me wrong. He has many great reasons for being in this state, 
but it's blinding him from seeing that he is not fit for his duty. He says himself that he has been dreading the moment the Borg finally invades the Federation for six years. He is afraid, terrified even, that they cannot be stopped. And I think that fear actually pisses Picard off. Uh, things first start going off kilter when Picard said that the crew was likely to come across former crew members turned into Borg and that they should not hesitate to kill them. It's, it's like he's forgetting that a person can be brought back uh, and made human again, just like he was. Then later, he looked right at Ensign Lynch, knowing who he was, and just about emptied a clip into him like he was enjoying it, and then went to bash his head in with the butt of that Tommy gun. Picard reached inside his body to get that neural processor out of him like he was nothing. Even Lily said, just tough luck, huh? That, that was crossing the line and, and acting way out of character for Picard, who normally cares greatly for each member of his crew. Well, maybe not Barkley. <laughs> but seriously, uh, then when the security officer tells Picard that the Borg have completely adapted to the Enterprise's weapons, Picard orders him to fight hand-to-hand -hand if necessary. He said this knowing about the nanotech injectors on the Borg's wrists that could easily turn them into the Borg. You can see the look and on the security guy's face, he, he can't even believe that Picard is actually saying these things. Even Worf tells him they cannot win this way and that the Enterprise is lost. Then Picard actually calls Worf a coward and refuses to allow the Borg to control his ship for even a moment. It is no coincidence that Lily compares Picard to Captain Ahab chasing the whale. Picard has straight up lost his mind and can't see anything, not even his crew and friends. This is what I'm talking about when I say Starfleet was right to hold him back. Obsession, vengeance, and fury are all that Picard knows. And he piled upon the whale's white hump. The sum of all the rage and hate felt by his whole race. If his chest had been a cannon, he would have shot his heart upon it. Ahab spent years hunting the white whale that crippled him, a quest for vengeance. But in the end, it destroyed both him and his ship. I, I totally get what you're saying about Picard losing his way because of how much he lost at the hands of the Borg. I mean, at the minimum, he's dealing with a serious case of PTSD, and we've never seen him go as far as he does in this movie. I mean, he was out of character, as you said. At the same time, I feel like Starfleet here lost sight of a couple of things by benching the Enterprise. The main thing here is that Enterprise is more than just John Luke Picard. I mean, they also have Will Riker, who is the hero of the first Borg invasion, and who was the acting uh, captain during that crisis. Riker has shown repeatedly that he's willing to question Picard's orders when he thinks that the captain is wrong, and he's more than capable of taking over the captain's share if necessary. They also have Deanna, who as ship's counselor has the job of making sure that the crew is emotionally stable, and that also includes Picard. The Enterprise loyal, uh, crew is loyal to Picard, absolutely, but they can act on their own initiative, and they will hold uh, Picard accountable on the rare occasions he's gone off the rails. And if it became necessary, I mean, you know, as we've seen, Riker can assume command of the Enterprise himself, and the ship would run just fine. This crew would, was more than capable of handling the Borg, with or without Picard in direct command. That, the whole, that whole subplot of the Enterprise being sent off to the neutral zone Seemed a little bit forced, if I'm honest. I mean, they were trying to set up the big heroic rescue, which is fine, but the execution didn't quite ring true to me. To be fair, though, when the big space battle hits, it is awesome. <laughs> I, I, I really hate doing this, but I think we might have to agree to disagree here on this one. Um, in my opinion, uh, you, you mentioned Riker and Deanna stepping in. Uh, Riker didn't step in 
as we saw. And Deanna didn't make sure that Picard was stable. Uh, the crew was, in fact, almost assimilated, and the commanding officers were separated. I, I guess I just don't think that the crew could have handled it. But I will agree, uh, no pun intended, uh, that uh, Riker will have uh, could have taken the command of the Enterprise in Picard's stead and gone into battle. Uh, Picard could have even still been an advisor, and then they would have won. Uh, but what do you think of that, Steve? Uh, agree to disagree on this one, or, or can we reach an accord? Um, we can, but I'm going to have to go to disagree, agree to disagree to a certain extent. It seems like the writing didn't serve the crew as much as it should have when it comes to Picard. I mean, they're loyal, but they're not blindly so. They will question his decisions if something's seen off to them, and it's unusual that they didn't do that here. I mean, especially Beverly, who knows Picard better than anyone. It, it just comes across as, as a bit forced that they could have Lily be the one to call out John Luke. It's a great moment, sure. I mean, no question. But the execution could have been better in the setup of that. Uh, for the rest, I think we're in general agreement, so I think we're good to move on. But speaking of the Lily confrontation scene, I think you had a point you wanted to make about it. Yeah, you know, I, I can I can live with that. In fact, um, I, I, I can't agree that in, in, in all other cases, uh, but first contact, uh, the crew does seem to do the things that you're suggesting there. Uh, so, I mean, it, 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 it was just kind of weird in that movie. Um, but, uh, I mean, uh, as far as what we disagree on there, I mean, we're going to see things differently from time to time, and that's okay. But, yes, I do have something to say about both Lily and Picard in that scene you were talking about. I love that Lily was able to reach Picard with classic literature like Moby Dick. That is so very Picard, and I must admit to feeling a sigh of relief when Picard's eyes were suddenly clear and he remembers who he is. He remembers his crew risking everything to save him and Picard's plans to redeem himself by risking everything to save Data. Uh, even having seen First Contact like 20 times, I still love that moment when he comes back from the brink. Um, it is powerful on the same level as that one tear that poured out of Picard's cheek was powerful when he was being assimilated. I remember watching this the first time and wondering if Picard was going to wake up and see the light, and I just love it when he finally does. Oh, same here. I thought it was great that Picard was actually able to quote Moby Dick while L Lily just had a Cliff Notes understanding uh, of it. Uh, that had just seemed right to me. I mean, Picard has always been really well-read, and he would certainly have read his share of Melville, uh, including the infamous whaling chapter of Moby Dick. And yes, I have read it. Um, but to get back to the film, uh, Picard uh, needed that big moment of catharsis where he breaks through his mental blocks and sees the big picture. Even if his plan of blowing up the ship um, you know, was prevented by data later, at the time it seemed like the right decision that Picard is able to look past himself to see the bigger picture, even apologizing to Worf for all those very unkind remarks that uh, you mentioned earlier, shows that he's able to face up to his mistakes. Absolutely. You know, I, I want to say that this is a good case for greater maturity being revealed by the ability to self-examine and turn away from the wrong course. It was a dark path he was on, but like King David hearing about the man stealing his neighbor's one beloved sheep, a story of a like-minded madness brought Picard back to sanity. The truth of his actions were unveiled before his eyes. It works out to be an awesome character arc. Uh, but he was not the only character uh, with a cool character arc. Zephram Cochran has an interesting character arc in this story. You can tell by where they live that no one there was rolling in the dough. Zephram and Lily uh, built the Phoenix to get rich and get away from that dump. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. It's totally understandable even. 
Uh, but he is hero worshipped by the crew of the Enterprise E, and it makes him uncomfortable. He thought they viewed him as some sort of saint, and he looked at his life and just didn't see it. Cochran said, you know what my vision is? Dollar signs. Money. I didn't build this ship to usher in a new era for humanity. You think I want to go to the stars? I don't even like to fly. I take trains. Uh, I built this ship so that I could retire to some tropical island filled with naked women. That's Zephyrin Coffrin. That's his vision. This other guy you keep talking about, this historical figure, I've never met him. I can't imagine I ever will. But here's the thing. All of the people on the Enterprise E already knew about who he was and what he would do. And they didn't care about him being imperfect. In Riker's own words, I don't seek, think you're a saint, Doc, but you did have a vision and now we're sitting in it. It was his accomplishments that they were celebrating. Good, bad, or indifferent, Cochran accomplished something truly great. Riker really summed it up nicely by uh, by topping off Zephyrin's story arc and telling him that Zephyrin himself would one day say, don't try to be a great man just be a man and let history make its own judgments. That was a good line. And, and Riker throwing Cochran's own words in his face was great. But the weird thing about Cochran in First Contact is that we saw Zephyrin Cochran in an episode of the original series called Metamorphosis. And he acted nothing like this in that story. Uh, while the Cochran from Metamorphosis wasn't a saint either, he was close to the version of Cochran that the Federation history remembers. Now, it's possible that Cochran simply grew up, uh, sobered up, and he decided to live up to the expectations that history had of him. Though I more got the impression that the writers just invented the personality of Cochran in the film, probably trying to subvert expectations by showing him as a drunken pilot who was just in it for the money. That's that's totally fair. And you're right about the Cochran and Metamorphosis not being anything like the guy we see in the movie. However, I do think it was at least implied that Cochran would grow up and embrace those ideals eventually. Uh, but that was just my take on it. Although I will admit that he would have had to have grown, grown up awfully quick to line up with the original series episode. Not wrong about that. But I, I think that the idea of developing a character arc where Cochran learns to accept his place in history and becomes a better person is really cool. My only problem with it is just we just never really see that transformative moment in the film where he gets sold on it. Uh, maybe there was a scene uh, showing that, and it was cut for a while, we know. I would like to see it. But as as it is, we go from Riker stunning Cochran with a phaser for trying to cut and run. And then the next day, Cochran is on board with a plan to launch the Phoenix, and everything's fine. <laughs> I, I do think the Cochran issues are explainable, to be fair. I just wish the film had actually shown all that instead of leaving it to the viewer to do the work of the movie. I can agree with that. Uh, while I mentioned that I, I think it was implied that he did eventually turn into that man, it would have been better to see some kind of growth beyond somewhat vague quotes from the future. Uh, but if I could move on to a different point, I find it interesting that Picard talks to Lily about how mankind's goals and aspirations are not based on wealth or possessions any longer. They simply seek to better themselves, to become better people and accomplish greater things as a unified people. That same thing can be said about Data, except his, he is technically just trying to be more human. So that's more of a, a, a copying thing rather than the, the necessarily being a goal of himself there. Uh, but, but the base of that same 
idea connects to the Borg, who, who are also on a quest to better themselves by perfecting their species biologically and synthetically. Uh, but their goal is to make themselves superior to their former weaker selves, i.e. stronger and more powerful. Uh, the same base idea translates in three different ways. So what do you, what do you think they're trying to say with that, that comparison there? Um, if I were to guess, I would say that the film is saying that the desire to better oneself and improve can be a good thing. But there is a right way and a wrong way to go about that. The Enterprise crew wants to learn from their mistakes and grow together as people. The Borg, in contrast, wants to perfect themselves at the cost of others, and they don't care who or what they have to destroy in order to get there. Starfleet does it as individuals where the crew uh, of the Enterprise grow as they learn from each other, and that's ultimately the best way to improve and move forward. Awesome. I, I can totally get behind that. You know, I have really enjoyed diving into this with you, Steve. Uh, the Borg are a personal favorite Star Trek villain of mine, and Picard, as you know, is my favorite captain. Um, overall, though, I, I hope to have painted a picture of a good and righteous man who lost himself entirely to assimilation and became the antithesis of himself in every way. But I also want to show how redemption and growth was possible for him, even in spite of himself, because he was willing to listen. Picard has proved by his story that there is always a way back if we take it. That redemption aspect is a big reason why I like this story. It's also a reason that redemption is an overlapping theme in the Omenverse. But how about you, Steve? Uh, what are your closing thoughts on what we've been talking about here today? I don't think there's much question that the Borg occupy an elite status among Star Trek villains. I'd say once you get past the Klingons, Khan, and maybe Q, the Borg are the most iconic threat when it comes to the Star Trek universe. These stories we've discussed definitely represent the Borg at their best, and they've been fun to discuss. Moreover, these stories bring out the best in our heroes, and that's really what we want to see as fans of Star Trek. The Borg are definitely Picard's most deeply personal enemy, and that's one of the reasons they're so high up on the Trek pantheon of bad guys. Well said, Steve. Um, but that about wraps up this episode. Uh, we hope that you have had as much fun uh, as we have making this episode. We, we invite you to check out uh, the other shows on the Omen Comics Podcast Network, like our horror podcast, Countless Corpses Podcast, and our D&D group, The Fellowship of the D20. Uh, thank you for hanging out with us, and we'll catch you next month. Live long and prosper.